Well, good morning. In case you do not know, my name is Brett, and my wife is Carrie, and we have uh, three children, Tripp, Aiden, and Theo. We have been visiting here the last uh, three months or so. It has been a great privilege in getting to know some of you over the last few months. We certainly appreciate your love and care that you have shown to us. Attending here has been a tremendous blessing to our souls, more than you probably realize. So thank you, and thank you to Keith and the other elders for this opportunity to share God's word with you. Hopefully and prayerfully, you will be encouraged by the preaching of God's word this morning. If you talk to my wife, Carrie, she will likely tell you that I appreciate war movies In a negative sense, she would probably say that my taste for movies is limited to only war movies and sports movies. And her attempts to broaden my movie taste are mostly futile and ineffective. Many of you would probably agree that there is something very admirable or appealing in watching, hearing, and understanding the true life stories of the heroic acts of survival, sacrifice, and valor that are demonstrated in the lives of of men who have served in our armed forces. And in 2016, a movie entitled Hacksaw Ridge was released to the American public. As some of you may know, the movie is based upon the heroic actions of a man named Desmond Doss, who served as a U.S. Army corporal in World War II. Doss, a combat medic, refused to carry a weapon into battle because of his religious convictions. He simply desired to save lives rather than take them. During his service in the battle, of Okinawa, he rescued 75 of his fellow soldiers from the battlefield despite the horrific threats and realities of danger and death by the enemy. As a result of his heroic actions, he became the first conscientious objector to be awarded the Medal of Honor, which, by the way, is America's most prestigious and highest award given to military service members who demonstrate great acts of valor. When I think about the heroic actions of a Desmond Doss, I can't help but to think that perhaps this is another example of how God uses the weak and the foolish to shame the strong and the wise. And this morning, we're going to look at another real-life story, a biblical event in the history of the people of God, in which, in which we observe another unlikely individual whom God uses to shame the strong and the wise. And this individual, as we will see from the text, demonstrated great faith, courage, and great conviction, despite the odds and despite the threats of danger and death. We are going to look at the popular story of David and Goliath from 1 Samuel chapter 17. 
Now, since the chapter is just about 60 verses long, I'm certainly not going to read the entire chapter as we begin this morning, but I am going to begin by reading the first 11 verses. So if you have your Bibles, you can follow along as I read from the English Standard Version, 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 1 through 11. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and there were, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Ezekah in Ephes Damon. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain of the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was five thousand shekels of bronze." And he, had bronze, and he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Let us pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for our time together to gather, uh, to sing hymns and songs as brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, we thank you that you are a good and gracious God. You're slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Lord, we see throughout the pages of Scripture how you are faithful to your word. You are faithful to your promises. And Lord, you have been faithful to your people time and time and time again, even when we are unfaithful. And so we thank you for these great truths, Lord. Lord, let us be mindful this morning of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to rejoice and to give praise and thanks for his life, his death, his resurrection. Let us remember, Lord, 
By grace we have been saved through faith. This is not a result of our own doing, so that no one may boast. It is a gift from the Lord. And we thank you for that great gift, Lord. Lord, help us this morning to not only be hearers of the word, but to be doers of the word, Lord God. We thank you for the Spirit of God who dwells inside of us, who illuminates our hearts and minds to understanding, Lord. We thank you for your inerrant, sufficient, authoritative word, Lord. We have everything we need for life and for godliness in the written word of God. And so, Lord, um, we thank you for today. Please hide me behind the cross this morning. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. In the first 11 verses, we observe the challenge of Goliath and the response of the people. Our setting is located about 15 miles west of Bethlehem in the valley of Elah. This is Israelite territory, and according to one commentary, the Philistine camp was located on the southern slopes of the valley of Elah, while the Israelite camp is located on the northern slopes of the valley. Out in front of the camps is a flat valley, which would be an ideal location for two armies to perform hand-to-hand combat. And out from the camp of the Philistines comes a champion named Goliath. He stands in at roughly nine feet, nine inches tall, which is a few inches, few inches shy of the standard height for a basketball hoop. Not only is he considered a giant in those days, but he would also be considered a giant even by today's standards. Goliath wears a helmet of bronze on his head, and he is armed with a coat of mail. The New American Standard Bible uses scale armor for describing his armored coat, which I think provides for us a better picture of his armor. And the coat of mail is like the Scales of a fish, a fish that cover his midsection. The sleeves of his scale armor probably extend down to his elbows, and the length of the scale armor is likely extended to the middle part of the thigh in a skirt-like fashion. The weight of his coat is 5,000 shekels of bronze, which is approximately 125 pounds. He has brown bronze greaves on his legs, which are basically shin guards that are protecting his lower legs. He wears a javelin of bronze, which is probably a sword-like weapon that rests in a sheath between the shoulder blades. The shaft of his spear is like a weaver's beam, which is approximately 12 to 15 feet in length. And the iron head of his spear is 600 shekels which is approximately 15 pounds. If you want a poster child for military recruitment, Goliath is your man, not young David, as we will see. In verses 8 through 10, we observe the challenge of Goliath to the army of Israel. Goliath basically says, 
Pick out a warrior that is worthy to fight me. Let him and I do battle together in a one-on-one contest. If Goliath is victorious over the Israelite warrior, then the people of Israel will become slaves to the Philistines. If the Israelite warrior is victorious over Goliath, then the Philistines will become slaves to the Israelites. The concept of representative warfare is being presented here. Goliath represents his countrymen, while the Israelite warrior represents his countrymen. Now, why do battle this way? Well, perhaps the reasoning goes something like this. Why suffer hundreds or even thousands of fatalities when only one life is required in representative warfare? The loss of one life is a far better result or outcome than the loss of hundreds or thousands. And in this scenario, the terms of the one-on-one battle are laid out prior to the showdown. I am confident that the Philistines were fully confident in the skills of this giant warrior named Goliath, so much so that they were probably certain of victory. This was a win-win scenario for the Philistines. There's no possible way that they could lose this one-on-one contest. This specific type of warfare does not seem to be the, the normal practice in biblical times throughout the history of Israel, and it's certainly not the norm for our times if we evaluate wars that our country has been involved in within the last couple of centuries. Nonetheless, one man from the Philistines has called out to the nation of Israel to see if any Israelite would even dare to engage in this one-on-one contest with the giant named Goliath. In verse 11, we see the response of the people of Israel. When Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the the Goliath, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. The challenge of Goliath and the response of the king and the people of Israel sets the stage for the upcoming events in this narrative. As we transition into the next scene, we, we need to consider and keep in mind our responses in moments of trial, moments of difficulty, moments of challenge. Who, are, who or what are we trusting in? Who or what are we placing our hope and confidence in? In verses 12 through 23, David is introduced in the narrative. David, the shepherd boy, is the youngest of seven older brothers. Three are named in verse 13, Eliab, Abinadab, and Shammah. Now, to to provide some context here, God has already rejected Saul as king, and David has already been appointed by God as the next king of Israel. The anointing of David by Samuel was a private ceremony that took place with his father Jesse, and his seven brothers, because Samuel, he was fearful that Saul may kill him 
if he knew what he was up to. You can look at the first two verses of 1 Samuel chapter 16. Keep in mind that the seven older brothers of David were passed over in the Lord's selection of the next king of Israel. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 11, David is described by his, his father as the youngest. One translation uses the word runt. David is seen as the runt of the litter, if you will. And this likely means that David is, is viewed as the least important and the smallest in comparison to his brothers. The text in chapter 16 goes on to say that David is, a skill, is skillful in playing the lyre, that's L-Y-R-E, not L-I-A-R, which is a U-shaped musical instrument, probably like the modern-day harp. He's also described as a man of valor, a man of war, which seems a, a bit interesting since I'm not sure how much wartime he has seen up until this point. Text goes on to say that he's a man prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and a man in whom the Lord is with. This reputation of David is certainly not the same perspective that his brothers hold to, nor do the men of Israel, as we will see later on in this text. At the end of chapter 16, David was assigned as one of Saul's personal servants or armor bearers who was to play the lyre when a harmful spirit from the Lord was tormenting Saul. David is working two jobs here. He's a shepherd of his father's sheep and a personal attendant to the king, which helps us to understand verse 15 of chapter 17. David, the text says, David went back and forth from Saul to feeding his father's sheep at Bethlehem. In verses 17 through 23 of chapter 17, David receives instructions from his father, and he learns of the challenge of Goliath. Jesse provides his son David with specific instructions in providing provisions, not only for David's brothers, but also for their specific commander. He also communicates to David that he desires a report on the well-being of his three oldest sons. David honors his father by obeying his word. Let's pause for a moment. Children, teenagers, are you listening to the text? David honors his father by obeying his word. David obeys the words of his father. And allow me to remind you, children, teenagers, that how you obey your mother and father is directly related to how you obey God. In other words, if you disobey mom and dad, then you are disobeying God. If you complain and whine when asked to clean your room or when to ask to clean the kitchen table, then you are complaining and whining against the authority of structure that God has ordained for you, for your good. The Bible says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, 
for this is right. Honor your father and mother, for this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. By the way, David is very likely to be a teenager in this account, for both the Israelites and Goliath identify him as a youth. Most commentators seem to indicate or suggest that David is probably between the ages of 13 and 15 years old during his battle with Goliath. Not only does young David honor his father in obeying his father's instructions, but he also shows honor and respect to King Saul by using the words, your servant, in verse 32 of chapter 17. David says to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of Goliath. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Notice that David did not say, listen, man, I have been anointed king. Step aside. Let me fight this giant since you're too much of a coward to do so. And of course, David honors the Lord by responding in faith and confidence in the character and nature of God when the rest of his countrymen are responding in fear. As we face difficulties and challenges in a fallen, broken, sinful world, the children of God must rest and rely in the character and nature of God. We must respond in faith, not fear, even in the risk or threat of great physical harm or death. So the two armies are, are lined up for battle. David goes up to the battle lines to greet his brothers. As he's talking with him, David hears the challenge of Goliath. This encounter with Goliath seems to mark the beginning of David's journey from being a shepherd to a mighty warrior to a king of Israel. In verses 24 through 27, we observe the perspective of the people versus the perspective of David. You can follow along as we pick up the text again here in verse 24. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. <clears throat> the men of Israel 
including Saul and David's brothers, were very much afraid of the prideful taunt of Goliath, frozen with fear. And they were terribly afraid of this ten-foot-tall giant. The men of Israel refer to Goliath as a man. They say, have you seen this man who has come up? Now, Goliath, definitely a man here, just a very, very tall man with probably snake-like skin and muscles so defined it's as if, as if they were chiseled from stone. The men of Israel go on to say that this man has come up to defy Israel. And the text states that the men of Israel were very much afraid. Now it seems that fear can be born out of a horizontal focus, a man-centered focus, rather than a God-centered focus. In other words, the men of Israel are focused not on the character and nature of God. They're too focused on a giant named Goliath. The men of Israel seem to be holding to a horizontal focus rather than a vertical focus. It's, it's, it's as if the men of Israel have forgotten their identity, suffering from identity amnesia. And not only have they forgotten that they are the chosen people of God, they have also forgotten the redemptive work that God has accomplished for them by rescuing them from the hand of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. The men of Israel are not interpreting their current circumstance or trial through the lens of redemptive history by calling to mind the power of God the awesomeness of God, the holiness of God, the justice of God, the righteousness of God, and the promises of God. The Israelites are evaluating their current situation, their current problem, through a man-centered lens. As we, too, experience the pressures and trials of life, our theology will be exposed. And you can certainly observe the theology of the men of Israel bubbling up all over this text. Now, if you stop for a moment and think about what this country has endured over the last few years, what churches have endured over the last few years, and perhaps even what we have personally endured over the last few years. This statement regarding trials, challenges of life, exposing our theology, may ring truer today than ever before. And in our text this morning, the theology of the Israelites is being exposed due to a confrontation offered up by a giant named Goliath. And if we hold to an inflated, man-centered perspective, then we will have a deflated, God-centered perspective. David here, on the other hand, rightly identifies Goliath as this uncircumcised Philistine. Now, why would that be important? Well, This giant Goliath, he's not included 
in the covenantal relationship between God and his people. Thus, David rightly states that this uncircumcised Philistine is in rebellion, not against the army of Israel, but rather in rebellion against the armies of the living God. It's as if David is saying, fellow countrymen, brothers, you are not viewing, you are not thinking about your current circumstances through the lens of faith and the power and strength of the living God. You're focused too much on the towering stature of Goliath. Do you not remember how God has fought for his people in the days of old? Do you not recall the promises that God has made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? David rightly defines and understands this current difficulty or challenge in light of the character and promises of the Lord God. David is responding in faith, not fear. He is trusting in and focusing on the character and nature of God. David here is maintaining a God-centered perspective, whereas the men of Israel and King Saul are holding to a man-centered perspective. David's perspective, or David's theology of God, is so broad and deep that it has influenced his response to, to the current problem. And that seems to be how this is supposed to work. Our theology, our doctrine, our thinking of who God is will certainly drive our behavior and it will influence how we interpret or think about life events. A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, says, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Right thinking Deep thinking about God usually is going to lead to right behavior. Good theology, good practice. Bad theology, bad practice. Our thinking, our theology, our doctrine is certainly going to influence our decisions, our behavior, and our feelings. As believers in the Lord, we need to guard our thinking. We must be disciplined in our thinking to call to mind the character and nature of God over and over and over again as we face difficulty, trials, hardships, uncertainty. Perhaps the greater shame is not the menacing uh, taunt of the giant Philistine, but rather the lack of faith and belief displayed by the men of Israel and King Saul. Who or what are we going to place our trust and confidence in? Who or what are we focusing on in times of uncertainty, in times of difficulty, and in times of challenge? In verses 28 through 30, Eliab, the oldest brother of David, is angry at David for his presence among the fighting men of Israel. Notice what he says to David. Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? 
I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. Eliab here, or Eliab, uh, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And so like, like Desmond Doss, who faced opposition and ridicule in his own infantry unit for his religious convictions, David is now facing opposition and ridicule from a member of his own family for his religious convictions regarding the character and nature of God. Now, Eliab, who is perhaps bitter or angry, thank you, Eliab, who is perhaps bitter or angry for getting passed over as the next king of Israel, he lashes out at his younger brother by questioning his motives. He certainly does not seem to care for the well-being of the sheep, but rather seeks to put down or to remind his little brother of his insignificant service and his unwanted presence. It's as if he's saying, get out of here, David. The battle lines are no place for you. Go back to tending those worthless sheep. According to one commentary, Christians can be sometimes the biggest obstacle in preventing young Christians from stepping out in bold faith. And this particular commentator goes on to state that the Cowardly people of God are always the biggest obstacle to the mission of God. Unfortunately, this may be more of a, of a re- reality in our American churches today than we may care to admit. So we need to be on guard against any critical spirit or skeptical attitude that may hinder or discourage the young people of God in stepping out in faith by advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Perhaps we need to be more like young David, acting boldly in faith, trusting in the character and nature of God in all situations, challenges, in times of life-altering physical conditions, in times of dealing with a rebellious child, in times of financial crisis, spiritual crisis. We may also need to examine at times our own motives and and service for fulfilling the Great Commission in our local churches, in our families, and within our neighborhoods. The greater obstacle here is not Goliath nor Eliab. The greater surprise or shock is the lack of faith and trust that the people of God are demonstrating. The greater obstacle and the greater offense to God is the unbelief that dominates the hearts of the men of Israel. Again, we need to consider who or what are we trusting in? Who or what are we placing our confidence, our hope, and trust in? As we face difficulties, trials, challenges in a fallen, broken, sinful world, 
the children of God must rest and rely in the character and nature of God. We must respond in faith, not fear. And what is faith? Well, Hebrews 11 tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. One author states it this way, Faith is reliance, a rock-solid, truth-grounded, promise-founded trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Another author puts it this way, Faith is believing the word of God and acting upon it, no matter how I feel, knowing and trusting that God promises a good result in the end. In verses 31 through 37, we observe the dialogue between King Saul and the shepherd boy. Saul receives word that a man, or in this case, a shepherd boy, has been talking smack among the ranks of the men regarding their giant problem, pun intended. As a result, Saul sins for David. Saul says, For you, David, are not able to fight with this man. For you are but a a youth, and this Goliath has been a man of war from his youth. Saul, simply stating the obvious here, he's saying that David is no match for this warrior, and who can blame him? A shepherd boy who may not even be 16 years old against a 9-foot, 9-inch seasoned warrior? If I were a betting man, my money's on Goliath. King Saul, trusting in, relying on the outward appearance of these two men, rather than trusting in the character and nature of God. The opposition from Eliab, And now the king does not shake David's confidence and trust in the Lord. David responds to Saul by saying, Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. I used to keep sheep for my father, and when a bear or a lion came and threatened the life of one of my father's sheep, I went after him and struck him and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And if the bear or the lion reared up at me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. David says that this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of the bears or lions that he has struck down in previous months and years as he was protecting his father's sheep from predators. David goes on to say, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. David credits the Lord for his victories over the bear and the lion. David is not trusting in his own strength or his own warrior skills, or his previous experience battling giants. He's placing his confidence and trust in the Lord. He seems to be demonstrating a theologically sound, 
God-centered perspective rather than a theologically depleted man-centered perspective. And if you haven't picked up on it yet, I think this is really our main idea from this narrative, is that the people of God must respond in faith and confidence in the character and nature of God when facing difficulties, trials, and hardships. We must respond in faith, not fear. David speaks confidently in the Lord and not only from personal experience, but I think he knows at least a little history regarding the people of God and the covenants that God has made with his forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. At the very least, you would think David would know the Ten Commandments of God, which begin with this premise. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of of slavery, out of the house of slavery. In 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 18 through 19, God speaks to his people through the prophet Samuel. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. David did, David did not just wake up one morning and decide to place his confidence and trust in the Lord. What do you think he has been pondering on, meditating on, while shepherding his father's sheep? His Twitter feed, his Facebook post, his Instagram account? And what about those nights under the stars as he gazed up into the heavens. Where do you think his mind is gravitating to? We are all created in the image of God, and we are rational beings. We are always thinking, analyzing, interpreting, evaluating our life situations. And I bet David spent the majority of his time thinking, pondering over the covenants that God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, calling to mind the awesome miracles that God performed as he was rescuing and redeeming his people from the Egyptians. David disciplined and trained his mind to think, to ponder, to meditate on the awesome works of God as he was revealing himself to his people. And I think we need to train our minds to do the same. If we desire to respond in faithfulness and obedience to the challenges of life, we need to train our minds to think, to ponder, to marvel at the beauty of the character and the nature of the triune God. As David suits up for battle in verse 38 through 40, he realizes that Saul's armor does not properly fit him. As with any armor, there needs to be a balance between the level of protection, weight, freedom of movement. It's very likely that the armor of Saul would have limited his freedom of movement. And for a shepherd boy to go against a bigger, stronger opponent, he needs the freedom to move freely without any 
hindrance. <clears throat> what about the five smooth stones? Some scholars, Christians, seem to make a somewhat of a big deal about David's choosing five stones when he only needed one to strike down Goliath. Well, I really don't think that the five stones versus one stone is the point of the narrative, and I don't think we should read too much into it. I like how one pastor, he put it this way. Well, it's possible that Goliath had four brothers, one stone for each of them. So, Well, let's pick up the uh, text again here and, and read verses 41 through 49. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And, this, and the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So Goliath is basically saying here, are you kidding me? Are you going to insult me by sending out a shepherd boy to fight me? In Goliath's mind, this boy is nowhere close to a worthy opponent. As David gets closer to the giant, his faith and confidence in the Lord does not waver. It is the Lord who delivers his people from their enemies. It is the Lord who saves, not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's and the victor has already been determined. So we know that David is not the ultimate hero in this story. We know that God is the ultimate hero in this story. Picking up in verse 50, David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. David ran and stood over the Philistine. He took his sword, drew it out of his sheath, killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout. 
and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Shararaim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. God used an unlikely individual, a shepherd boy named David, who overcame ridicule and opposition from his superiors while remaining steadfast in his confidence and trust in the Lord, defeating a seasoned warrior named Goliath. The Lord provided an unlikely quote-unquote hero for his people to be rescued from this uncircumcised Philistine. And we know that the Lord provided another unlikely hero for his people to be rescued from the power of sin and darkness, the God-man Jesus, a lowly carpenter from Nazareth, a suffering servant who bore our shame and guilt, the eternal Son of God who exercised perfect faith, and obedience to the will of the Father. Jesus humbled himself, stepping out of eternity and into time, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, born of a virgin, becoming obedient to the Father even to the point of death, suffering a humiliating death on a cross for the sins of all those who would repent and believe in him. This story of David's unwavering faith in the Lord points us to our ultimate rescuer and redeemer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, he is our great high priest, our great substitute, and he is our great shepherd warrior king. He also overcame ridicule and opposition from his own people, a people he came to save, exercising perfect faith and trust in God the Father, defeating the powers of sin and death through his life, death, and resurrection. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The Apostle Paul states in 1 Corinthians 15, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you are a non-believer here this morning, we urge you to repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Turn from your sin, place your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to save you from the power of sin and eternal death. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, who or what are we trusting in? Whatever difficulty or challenge we are facing, the people of God must respond in faith, and confidence in the character and nature of God for his glory and for our good 
Let us take our eyes off our giants, fix our eyes on the power and love of God through the person and work of Christ. In Christ, we have nothing to fear, for he has overcome sin, the world, and the devil. If he is for us, then who can be against us? We cannot be stunted by fear as Saul and the men of Israel were. We must exercise our faith by focusing our hearts and minds on the promises of God. As the men of Israel were to look back on God's redemptive work when he rescued them from the hand of the Egyptians, we too are to look back at the cross and how he saved us from the power of sin and darkness. We need to renew our minds in the studying of God's word, standing firm in the face of adversity, calling to mind the steadfast love of faithfulness, leaning on our brothers and sisters in Christ and our local churches, encouraging one another, exhorting one another, forgiving one another, praying for one another. We need to seek to put on the armor of God, the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, the breastplate of righteousness, the sword of the Spirit, fixing our eyes on our great shepherd warrior king, the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to seek to exercise our trust, our confidence in the character and nature of God, who has saved us from the power of sin and darkness because of the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ. Looking back, looking at the cross, calling to mind the forgiveness that we have in Christ because of God's saving work in our lives. We are victors because of Christ's victory over sin and death. And if we struggle to respond to life's difficulties in faith, we turn to God. We ask him to help us in our unbelief. Help us. Ask him to give us the faith to respond to, in faithfulness and obedience. Romans 8, For he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we... <clears throat> Thank you for this morning. Thank you for our time together, Lord. And Lord, I pray that uh, you would help us, Lord, uh, to see our great need for Christ each and every day. Help us to uh, respond in faithfulness and obedience in every area of our life, Lord, as husbands, as fathers, as wives, as mothers, as co-workers, as brothers and sisters in Christ, Lord. Help us to, to call to mind the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, looking to the cross, recognizing the forgiveness of sins that we have. All of our past, present, and future sins have been paid for in the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ. So help us to, to rest and rely and to trust in your goodness, your faithfulness, your steadfast love, and the character and nature of the triune God. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.